This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. Welcome to the Murder Chronicles. I'm your host, Carolyn Osorio. You're listening to part one of The Werewolf Butcher. Many of you have probably never heard the name Jack Spillman III. He's the so-called werewolf butcher. And that's a true testament to the investigators who didn't just work these murder cases back in 1995, but also caught this serial killer in a week's time. No small feat, given the nature of his crimes in what would later be described as one of the most horrific crime scenes ever in the state of Washington. They said it was the worst crime scene they'd ever seen. Well, I don't know if I'd believe it. I know they'd open up and say that they've never had nothing like this happen before. Well, Douglas County's real small. They've never had murders like this in years. And, you know, in fact, I can tell you in this state, there's very few occurrences ever of murders like that. So rare. Pennies are... The voices you just heard belonged to the legendary criminal profiler Dr. Bob Keppel and Jack Spillman, a serial killer who made it clear that his hero was the infamous Ted Bundy. Had Spillman gotten away with the murders of Penny Davis and Amanda and Rita Huffman, there's Little doubt, given his nature, that many, many more women and young girls would have shared the same fate. You can't really say how you get to it. Why can't you say? What's difficult about it? It just happens. I mean, there's an appetite. How do you get the appetite? It just comes to you. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I mean, I can't explain how it is. I mean, it's... But you, you classify it as an appetite or an interest, or is it more an appetite? It's an appetite. How strong is the appetite? It's a hunger. Spillman wasn't just a sadistic killer who gorged off of the fear of his victims, but he drank their blood and ate their flesh. The thing inside of me, it's like the appetite, it's, it's like a wolf, I mean... It's like a wolf that's fulfilling the hunger, the appetite. Like a wolf that's always, when he eats, he gorges himself until next time. Now, you mentioned the thing inside you. What is the thing inside you? It's like, I can't say it's a wolf, but I mean, it's like... Tell me what you feel like. I feel like some savage, but... uh, Tell me what you really feel. What does it make you feel? Why well, just wants maybe to tear open a human being. I mean, it's just, it's that hatred. You using the word hatred? For what? Well, women, I mean. In this episode, you will hear Spillman detail his crimes without a shred of remorse. It appears his only regret was getting caught. And you might wonder, as we did, 
why give a platform to a serial killer? Especially one who bragged about wanting his murderous killing spree to be bigger than Bundy. But in my opinion, the value of listening is twofold. Getting into his twisted head is not for his sake. But to explore the warning signs, his ramping up would only become devastatingly clear after his crimes were exposed. But more importantly is that people need to know what he did so he can never get out of prison. We'll get to that galling possibility later in the show. But first, a warning as you listen to Spillman in his prolonged taped interview, be wary. Because the deeds of the so-called werewolf butcher will be really difficult to hear. You kind of decided about cutting breasts off and vaginas out. Mm-hmm. How about the evisceration, cutting up the stomach? Yeah, it was all of it. It's part of it. In hindsight, it seems tragically obvious now that Jack Spillman was a major threat to girls and women, even when he was just a little kid. Roy Wilson, as he was called, was born in 1969 in the city of Wenatchee, which is in the eastern part of Washington state. For some reason, it's unclear as to why, Roy would change his first name to Jack, and then he also changed his last name to that of his stepfather, and legally became known as Jack Spillman III. Spillman was one of five children, the only boy, and the family moved around quite a bit when he was growing up, from Wenatchee to Tacoma, then to Boise, Idaho, and then back to rural eastern Washington to a small city called Tonesket. But Spillman's cruelty became devastatingly clear pretty early on. When Spillman was a kid... His sister would allege in an interview later that she believed he purposely killed her bunny. And it was her feeling at the time that it just wasn't to be cruel. Even as a child, she herself recognized that there was something deeper going on, that he seemed to enjoy watching her reaction to the loss, even as he denied killing her rabbit. No one knew until he admitted it to Dr. Keppel that Spillman had lured a seven-year-old girl to his fort where he molested her when he was just 10. Molested the first girl. She slapped me three times and I let her go. How old was she? Just two years younger than me. Like, how old were you at the time? Around 10. The Murder Chronicles will return in a moment. But a quick warning. When we come back, there will be some content related to animal cruelty, so listener discretion is advised. Shortly after Spillman molested the seven-year-old girl when he was just 10 years old, he killed his first cat for pleasure. Mom's in my fort. My next-door neighbor's cat was uh, close by, and I saw him. It was just like something just came over to me to... to, uh, and I went in the, into the house and got a knife and uh, went back and called him over. Had him in my lap and he was purring. He was just, you know, the purring guy kind of irritated me and just stabbed him, stabbed him, stabbed him. While he was in your lap? Yeah. And tossed it. Then went and put back the knife. Got to clean it off. I never, it didn't know then why I did it, but. Did it make you feel good? No, afterwards I didn't. It was like, well, why'd I do that? 
At 13, Spillman did start getting in trouble for some of his criminal activities, but many of the details of those arrests were sealed because he was a minor. Throughout his life, he would be described as a quiet loner, but no one had any idea what the teenager was getting up to in the woods by himself, where he privately engaged in a dark obsession with birds. When I was a teenager, we used to go out and hunt, shoot them. I told you about killed one bird and hung it up and shot it many times and did a sexual act with it. Like what? What did you do with it? I put a hole in it and put my penis in it and masturbated Mm. How many times do you think you did that with birds? Plenty. Plenty times? What kinds of birds? There's little birds, the robins, the... I don't know the birds. What, what, what do you mean when you shoot them? What, what were you using to shoot them with? Yeah, I had a 22. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Then I shot some squirrels and I saved the tails and, and the skins of them. It was more sexual. While living in Tunasket with his mother and stepfather, Spillman dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. His crimes continued to land him in and out of juvenile detention on a litany of charges, from burglary to public indecency, auto theft, illegal consumption of alcohol, second-degree escape from incarceration, and sexual assault. And as I mentioned, although his juvenile court records were sealed, there was a documented history of his crimes. But his deep hatred of girls and women went unseen, seething and growing just below the surface. During his taped interviews with Dr. Keppel, Spillman never explains where this anger and desire to get even at girls and women came from. However, a report from the Wenatchee world featured an interview with Jack Spillman's former attorney who would say that Spillman was probably sexually abused as a child and that he lived with numerous stepfathers, one of whom was described in court records as very violent. The criminal profiler Vernon Geberth, who researched and wrote about the Jack Spillman case, would explain that childhood is where the seeds of deviancy are planted. And... According to Geberth, Spillman's childhood fits the profile of how serial killers develop. Geberth says, quote, Maybe a little boy sees a video his father is watching. The video may include scenes of a woman being sexually degraded or dominated. For that little boy, his whole goal in life becomes to find this situation. The child now begins to attach a lust or sexuality to things that are really not in the normal range. This usually shows up as sexual sadism, a chronic and progressive disorder. It needs to feed itself. During Spillman's interview with Dr. Keppel, he says he doesn't remember ever being molested. I've asked my mom, I've asked my dad, I've asked plenty of people, but I'll say no. Right. I have been molested in lots blocked somewhere. I don't remember. In fact, Spillman wanted to make it crystal clear that he was the one doing the molesting, which included a young relative he had access to. Molested for many years. I mean, she told, I mean. She told? How many times she tell on you? Just once. Just once. But that's when you blamed it on your, your uncle. Did you molest her after that? After she told, too? No. You didn't? Dr. Keppel would tap into Spillman's 
get-even mentality against women and girls during this interview, how a childhood prank in high school by a classmate named Belinda would fester, something Spillman would never forgive nor forget. I went to school and this girl named Belinda. She told me to meet, meet her after school at the bleachers. So I did, but she didn't show up. It, all it was was just a game or whatever. And I waited and I waited. And the next day I went back to school and everybody was laughing at me. I guess it's little things like that that makes me have hatred towards women. I would say that's all. I, mean, but I don't know how to explain all that. But. What age were you when Belinda didn't show up? What like, grade were you in? Ninth grade. The Murder Chronicles will return in a moment. In October of 1985, not long after the incident with Belinda, Spillman was 16 years old, and he was sent away to the Maple Lane Juvenile Facility for two years on an indecent liberties charge for a sexual assault on his next-door neighbor. And it's during the span of his incarceration at Maple Lane from October 1985 to September 1987 that Spillman escaped and broke into homes for cash and food. How many burglaries you figured you had done in your time? Uh, No way to count them. Um, Many. Many times. But when you first started, it had to do with food and money? Yeah. It was, uh, got to be a rush. I got to be addicted to the rush. It would be just like, you know, someone does robbery, and then they can get a, they get that rush mm-hmm. going in there. And I got a rush from going in there and sneaking in the house with them, always home, but always home. Did you like it better when they were home? Yes. You did? Why? Oh, it was just more of excitement. I mean, it was a, just to go in there and be in our house, be right next to them, and they don't even know, they don't even know you're there. And it's here that Spillman, like the killing of those birds, twisted the home invasions into a perverse sexual fantasy where he would power trip over his sleeping victims. It turned into a sexual excitement. Um, It wasn't so much of taking anything anymore. It's just actually being there right next to him, watching him. You know, you're there. You do whatever you want to. They wouldn't even know what's coming. Spillman would watch the families who had no idea they were being surveilled by a predator. He was learning their patterns, fantasizing about what he would do to these unsuspecting and vulnerable victims. Were those exemplary of the type of burglaries that you were interested in when you go in and do a burglary? My early ones, no, they're totally different. Okay, what's different about them? These ones are totally sexual. I mean, they're do you go in there and go through the clothes? Where do I go through the clothes? It's not, it's not going in there and taking anything. I mean, I could have went in and took VCRs, TVs, whatever, but that's, they didn't want them. It was a woman's underwear that I wanted. Now, did you scope out the people of the house before to know that there were certain types of people in that house? Yeah, you'd see who's there. Spillman's proficiency at burglarizing continued to grow, while at the same time, he went around following women, waiting for the ideal circumstances for him to expose himself. When you talk about hunger, was that an appetite at that time? No, that wasn't even around then. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean there's stages there when 
<clears throat> they go through. I mean, it's a different kind of a hunger, I guess. I mean, back then it was exposure. I mean, that was till today. I mean, that's still a problem. But uh, exposure was well, it was first start masturbating secretly, and then it goes well. I would go to a park, but I would hide and watch women, and then it would then I would come out in the open, you know, and then it would progress from there. But did you get caught at that time? Exposing? No, not that time. Mm -hmm. Now, what are these stages you say that people go through? Tell me what those are. Just stages that, uh, like I just said, uh, it's just you start secretly, then and it's just like, well, then you need something else to more of a excitement, or it gets boring, and then. And it's your fantasies that it drives it. Fantasies today are way out of whack. I think the way, the reason why I am today is because of, I think it's because of my fantasies. Your fantasies. Spillman's burglaries weren't just about the power he gleaned as he hovered over innocent people, fantasizing about what he could do to them if he wanted to. He also used it as an opportunity to steal underwear from the women that he had stalked. Who's, who's them closer to you? What do you mean? The women that were in the house I took the, the underwear from. Okay. I have some from them. It all goes for the fetish of, of underwear, I guess. That's my fetish is underwear. Mm -hmm. Do you have any recollection of your first fetish with underwear? Um, it was my sister's. That my sister's underwear went into the bathroom and uh, put them on. Masturbate. Not necessarily thinking of her, but uh, just just having them on got excitement on it. Mm -hmm. This first time. The scores and scores of burglaries, exposure, and stolen underwear fueled his twisted fantasies. His girlfriend became another one of his unsuspecting victims. What are your what what is your opinion of women? What what are they for? What are they for? Mm -hmm. My own pleasure. I mean, outside of my family. I mean, I we got women everywhere in my family. But do you think of them differently than yeah. the other people? What's the difference? Well, they're my family. It's just I mean, I mean, I love them. I mean, sure. But any other woman, if you want to take for instance, she's just naive. But, I guess you could say that I used her. It got to a point that there was a little feeling there, but uh, it wasn't really much. I mean, we had sex like twice every two weeks. And that was just because of for me to please her. You weren't pleasing yourself? I mean... You were pleasing yourself, sometimes. The only time I was is as if... Because every time that we do anything, I would think about killing her mm -hmm. or killing someone else. And then... And I would get pleasure Even Dr. Keppel, an expert criminal profiler, seems to be at a loss as he tries to understand the allure of exposure. And the question is an important one because he will uncover the underbelly of the so-called flasher, which should never be minimized. I don't understand exposure. How can you go exposed to molest somebody, back to exposed to killing somebody, 
back to expose. What is there about that process? Go back, it's always there. It's always there. But is it a relief? Is it a temporary, temporary, temporary relief to what? The hunger? Yes, it used to work, but then that 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 doesn't even work anymore. I mean, I used to be able to settle it by going out and exposing. Maybe like in Spokane, when I was in work weeks, uh, get on one of the transit buses. Right, you sit in the back. You know, my big girl in the back. Well, then you masturbate, and she sees you, and the reaction. Then that will subside. But today, it's it's nothing. I mean, it's like nothing. I mean, it's, no, it doesn't even touch it. Doesn't even touch it. But you still do it. But I still do it. Yeah. Why? I don't know. You like it? Oh yeah, of course. I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it. In 1993, Spillman was convicted of second-degree rape in Spokane County. When he got out of jail in 1994, he was 25 and began living a somewhat nomadic lifestyle, where he worked sporadically as a roofer and stayed with his girlfriend and her mother in Tenusket. Remember, that's a small city that's located on the eastern bank of the Okanagan River, a little over four hours from Seattle. At some point during this time, Spillman met and became friendly with a woman named Dana Davis. Now, Dana had moved to Tenusket from Tacoma, which is the third largest city in Washington. And Dana's story should have been one of triumph, not tragedy. Dana Davis was in her early 30s when she took a hard look at her life as a single mom raising four little kids on her own. According to the LA Times, Dana was living in public housing and she was on welfare. Opportunities for a single mom with four kids weren't overwhelming. But Dana envisioned a way out for herself and her children when she saw a want ad for a property in the Enos Valley near Tenusket. And she went about negotiating a deal with the seller to buy the house and 20 surrounding acres for $1,000 down and then affordable monthly payments. In July of 1993, Dana and her brood moved out to the property And the house wasn't much to look at. It didn't have running water, a telephone, the power came from a generator, and the property was about 20 miles away from town. Even so, the kids had fresh air, wide open spaces, and finally a home of their own. It wasn't long before Dana made a new friend, Jack Spillman. Now, Jack Spillman was no Ted Bundy when it came to ingratiating himself into society, but Spillman knew how to appear, quote-unquote, normal, as he wormed his way into Dana's inner circle. In such a rural location, Dana was no doubt grateful for Spillman's platonic company. Remember, he had a girlfriend in town. So Spillman never moved in with Dana permanently, but he would come and go as he pleased, spending the night off and on, and continuing to ingratiate himself with Dana and her kids. The thing is is that Dana had no idea of Spillman's criminal history, that he was a child predator grooming one of her little girls. There was Penny and her little sister, who I'll call Jane. Penny was not an intended target. Who was the intended target? You weren't talking to the Penny's. No, she wasn't. The other one was. Why was the other one the target? Because of something that she denied me, put it that way. She denied you? Here, Spillman chillingly describes how he chose his victims. I should say Penny is an outgoing person. I mean, she was like an angel. 
I guess you put it, I mean, she was outgoing, she was, she was bright, she was very aware of what was going on around her. She, she was like, withdrawn, you know, she reminds me, reminds me of a lot of myself. She like, drawn into her own world. First I'm gonna look at them two and automatically pick as a victim because she's so withdrawn and so much in her own world that with her, that's attractive. Huh? That's attractive. That gets your well it's not attractive, it's it's just size enough for selective. That's what are you doing? Okay. <clears throat> if you take withdrawn, Penny that's outgoing, if you touch Penny, she'll go to her mom. Mm-hmm. If you touch By this time, Spillman was well-practiced at picking his potential child victims, preying on Jane's innocence. I didn't want her mom looking at me, I mean, as in, what are you doing with my daughter? Because what she doesn't know is, what she didn't connect on is every time I was always around her daughter, when I was around her two sons, I was never around. I didn't have no contact, really, with their sons. But the daughters, I helped with their homework. I helped with their chores, you know, I did everything with them. I had to create a little thing where her mom wouldn't suspect me of being around her, her daughter. So I helped her with her homework first, you know, created a, so we can be together. And I read books, but then when I was reading books, she got them sat on my lap. And then reading books so I didn't look bad. After a while, when she just come up and sit on my lap and in any old time, her mom wouldn't, wouldn't even notice. Wouldn't even, know, wouldn't even think twice. But uh, then started touching you. I was in testing her. First I grabbed her hand, pulled her hand, and uh, nothing. She didn't say nothing, didn't do nothing. And then a little while she kept squeezing my hand when I squeezed her hand. So she'd react on my reaction. And then I would uh, put my hand on her lap. She wouldn't say nothing. And then it would be around her waist. She wouldn't say nothing. I mean, this ain't all at one time. These are like, days after. And then it come to where I tried to fondle her. She didn't go for that. She always got my hand and pulled it away every time I tried. And at one time that it's also that I used to sleep upstairs with the kids. I used to have my own section that when I wake up in the morning, sometimes they wake me up and uh, I don't sleep with any clothes on. Sometimes I let my covers, you know, fall down so that they're revealing and be sitting right next to me, but she grabbed covers and covered myself right back up. You know, but I never said nothing. She never said nothing. And one time out in the, like a little shed thing, she finally told me she doesn't like me touching her there. She said, don't touch me there. I said, okay. And I never touched her after that again. But I said to myself, I said, well, you're not going to die me. I'll get you. From that moment on, it seems that Spillman made it his mission to get back at Jane, to get even with this child because she didn't want to be molested by him. Spillman secretly began parking his car out of sight, in the woods, but within walking distance of the family's homestead. His plan was to walk to Dana's residence, unseen, where he'd watch and wait for the right time to snatch Jane. There any times that I came down and camouflaged, tried to get her three or four times, but they always, they were outside, but then they went inside and 
said, heck with it, and I went in. But one day, time was right, but wrong person. The other one was took off, and Penny was there all alone. I mean, she was playing a game. As, she was actually playing a game where she was kidnapped by some guy. On September 19, 1994, 10-year-old Penny went with Jack that day. He'd asked her to go back with him to his car. He'd conned her into believing that he was taking her on a special adventure, just the two of them. It hadn't been hard. After all, he'd earned the family's trust. Why wouldn't she go with him? As he playfully scoops her up onto his shoulders, like he's some kind of hero, when really... He wants to make sure she will leave no tracks for the dogs that he knows will come looking for her later. At the time she was on your shoulders, where did she think she was going? She was going to uh, get the car. Because I came down before in camouflage, and I told him, well, I just parked my car up there and just walked down and hunting around. So she knew before that I did that before. So I told her, well, I'll just go up and get my car, and we'll just drive down there. She went up there, and then after she got in the car, well, before that, she was kind of, she got kind of leery because she kept on saying, well, where is it? Where is it? What's she looking for? Hmm? What was she looking for? Car. My car. Your car? Oh, oh you, you were walking up to the car and she, she kept saying, where is it? Where is it? Yeah. And just parked away the way. And then we finally got there. And she kind of, okay. And we got in. We drove around. I don't know if you ever been there. But then no, I was going to turn in her turn. I told her. Before we got there, I wanted to show her some horses. So I kept on driving, went past her, we're gonna turn off. She didn't say nothing. You know, I told her, she thought it was just a little ways down the road. I told her, well, you're with me, your mom won't care. And, but then actually, yeah, we got down there a while, she kept on asking where it was and everything. And when I got to where it was, she found out that she was in danger for that one. And that's where I won't go any further. Spillman carried Penny on his shoulders to his vehicle, and then they drove to the place, which he still refuses to identify, where he tortured her for two hours before he killed her. Are you strangling her, reviving her? Are you using the knife to... I say, yeah, I'm strangling her, her using the knife, and molesting her, and everything. More after a word from our sponsors. The fear and horror of what Penny endured is unimaginable. Spillman would describe floating her body along a riverbank and that he would eventually bury her in a hand-dug grave where he would return many, many times. Meantime, back at the homestead, it was 6.30, and Penny's seven-year-old brother returned. When Dana asked him where Penny was, he told her that she had walked off in a huff saying she was going for a walk after some little argument they'd had. And you know how it gets super dark in the country without streetlights. It didn't take long for Dana to jump on her horse and start galloping around the vast property, a flashlight clenched in her hand as she called out, Penny! Penny! She went to her neighbors, asking if they'd seen her penny. No one had. By 10 o'clock, Dana was desperate. She needed help. But without a phone at home, she had no choice but to leave the homestead to drive the 20 miles into town to report her daughter missing to the Okanagan County Sheriff's Department. When deputies arrived at the property that night, they saw a man driving along the road in front of Dana's home. They asked him who he was and what he was doing. 
It was Jack Spillman, and he told deputies that he was a friend of the family and that he was looking for Penny. The actual search for people who wanted to find Penny went into the night, but of course, at some point, deputies looked into Spillman's background and realized what an extensive criminal history he had, which included the sexual assault of a minor. At around 1 a.m. that morning, deputies drove to where Spillman was staying at his girlfriend's house in town. They knocked on the door, said they needed to speak with Spillman, and they wanted to take a look inside. Deputies would later recall that early morning visit didn't appear to rattle Spillman, saying he was dead calm as they searched the house. But he denied any involvement in Penny's disappearance. Other than proximity to the family, there just wasn't any physical evidence tying Spillman to the case. But in the days that followed, circumstantial evidence would surface. First of all, Spillman didn't have an alibi for the time of Penny's disappearance. And his timeline for what he was doing really didn't match up. He told deputies that he'd been at a party nearby, then had driven a short distance to his girlfriend's mother's house to take a nap at about 5 p.m. But no one at the party corroborated seeing him. And it was odd because Spillman claimed that when he arrived at the party, he went in through a window. Authorities were suspicious when the homeowner checked the window and noted that it was locked from the inside. And a witness from the party would later tell detectives that when Spillman did show up at around 10.30, he had dirt on him. Two weeks after Penny's disappearance, Jack Spillman, although a person of interest in her case, packed up and moved about two hours away from Tenesket to East Wenatchee. There, he moved in with his mom at first. But soon after, Spillman's girlfriend moved to Wenatchee too. She got a job and leased an apartment with a roommate. Now, Spillman had another place where he could come and go as he pleased. During this time, Spillman continued to work as a roofer, but was mostly unemployed. And by this time, Spillman had totally solidified his belief that women and girls were birds, reckoning back to his childhood. Why do you call women birds? I start calling birds. I think it's you observe birds. That's what I do with women. I observe them. I was just just taking the name from that just for the birds. I mean, women to birds. It's just that's why I call them. Around five months after Penny's disappearance in February of 1995, three blocks away from where Spillman was living in Wenatchee, a man attacked a young woman in her yard. He tore off her clothing called her by name. She kicked him in the groin. He ran off, but not before threatening her that he'd be back. The woman wasn't able to identify her attacker, and so the case remained open. Authorities would find out later it was Spillman. In early March, six months after Penny disappeared, a hiker discovered a jawbone about 12 miles from Penny's house. Close to where that jawbone had been found, Penny's remains were identified in a shallow grave. Unfortunately, her body was too badly decomposed to determine how or even where she died. See, investigators believe that the killer had moved her body from its original burial site. Basically, it takes two weeks for a jawbone to be able to disconnect from a human skull, which meant that since Penny's jawbone had become dislodged, it was more than likely that when the killer had moved her body to the second grave, that's how the jawbone dropped off during that process. 
The theory was that Penny was at the original burial site for at least two weeks before being moved. Of course, the recovery of Penny's body made local and national headlines, but it led them no closer to the killer. And the timing of the announcement had led some to believe that the news was the tipping point that triggered Spillman to commit a spree of bizarre burglaries in Wenatchee that would ultimately lead to the Huffman's murders. On March 31st, a woman reported that someone had entered her apartment through an unlocked rear window, then killed and mutilated her kid's pet hamster. When police arrived at the house and saw that blood from the hamster had been sprayed as if the hamster had been spun in a circle, and there was a blood-covered butcher knife that was found protruding from the head of a stuffed panda bear on one of the kids' beds. I'm sure at the time police grappled with trying to piece together what they were dealing with. Obviously, the burglary went well beyond a childish prank. And remember, the 1980s and 90s were a time when the satanic panic was very much alive and well. One thing we know for sure is that Spillman was not in the frame for this crime because by now, he'd mastered breaking and entering. He knew to leave no trace behind. It wasn't until later that investigators would connect Spillman to the family. His young relative was a friend to one of the kids in this family. And the girl had come into Spillman's orbit because he'd given her a ride home with his young relative on at least one occasion. A hamster. And, uh, but I got out of the cage and uh, I had my gloves. And they just grabbed it around the neck and squeezed and killed it. And I got a knife, cut its head off and cut it all up and flung around the room. Took the knife in the panda's head. That was just for a reaction, I guess, from them. I masturbated after that on my underwear. I put them back. That's when I put them back where I found them. Some days she might come in and put them on, but then I left. And then they accused her, or they questioned and I was there when they were questioning. Who was questioning? Some cop, I don't know. They were saying, well, got some fingerprints on the knife. You know? Just wanted to laugh. It's just... You were laughing? Oh, I was in the other room. And I was just like laughing to myself. Like, yeah, right. Because I know I would wear clothes. That's right. Spillman was at his sister's house when the police came to question his niece as if she had something to do with the killing and mutilation of the hamster. Not long after, another home was burglarized. A family found their cat dead and mutilated on the front room floor. And again, investigators would later connect Spillman to the family. I knew who lived there. I knew that there was two daughters and a mother and a father. I went there one night, and uh, the two daughters, the mother was the only one that were home. I was in the backyard, I was watching them, and everyone got their coats on, and they all got in, the, in their van and they left. And I went in their house, sliding, sliding glass door. I went in and uh, to the, their bedrooms, and went through their drawers, and went to their clothes, and the underwear. And, and uh, I think I took the youngest underwear, I took hers. Did you put it on at that time? No. Um, I went in the living room, and uh, there was a cat in there. It was just, as soon as I saw a cat, I went in the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and I went to the bathroom, grabbed a towel, came back in the living room, put the towel on the floor, and took all my clothes off, got the cat, put the cat on the towel, and I was masturbating. And then as soon as I ejaculated, I 
I stabbed the cat, killed the cat. And then afterwards, I put my clothes back on. Did you do anything else there at that time with the cat? No. How about the cat blood? No, I'm sure they seen it when they came home, but I never heard, none in, heard nothing in the papers. But what I wanted to do was cut the cat's head off, smear blood all over the place, but they came home and I had to dash out of the house. Why did you want to do that? It wasn't so much for the cat. I mean, it was, uh, I guess, it, to replace for not be able to do it to the girls. What gave you the idea that spreading a bloody cat head around the house, blood around the house, was a replacement for the girl? Well, it's, it was a sexual assignment for doing that, but it was, since I couldn't do it to the, to the girls, it would give me excitement for them to walk in and see all that, see the cat all over the place and blood all over the house. And, but if I could have deserved it, it'd be a lot better, but I could be there at the time. During this time period, Spillman was also following women and girls who caught his attention, tracking them home. Another burglary was reported to the police by a woman who said an unknown person, who we now know was Spillman, invaded her house like a specter in the night. And in this case, he would follow up with a threatening phone call. I never went back to that neighborhood. I mean, after all that happened, I mean, I went home after that because I went through some of her things and there was a phone call. I never picked it up, but left a message. But I remembered her name. I saw it somewhere. I looked up in the phone book, and I found it. Got her phone number. I called the, the number, and she answered. You can hear everybody else in the background, like a bunch of guys, like maybe they were cops or whatever, but uh, I told her that you're lucky. Never heard that in the paper. Tragically, Spillman had also been keeping tabs on Rita and Amanda Huffman. From that on, it was the grudge to get back at her. And had to find out who was in the house, who lived there. How'd you do that? By observing, went there. I hadn't been there during when it was snowing. I mean, there was snow on the ground. How long a period of time from the time you observed this lady flip off did it before you actually went in and killed anybody? How long a period of time is that? Months. Months? Um, After observing the Huffmans from afar for months, on the rainy night of April 12th, 1995, Jack Spillman would leave his girlfriend's house at 11 o'clock, telling her he was going for a drive. But what he didn't say was that he had one destination on his mind, the Huffmans. Next time on The Murder Chronicles, part two of The Werewolf Butcher. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.